three days of drinking. Um, yeah. My face has gone. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 162 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I don't mean to start the pod on a downer, lads, but it seems my favourite bra, it's, it's gone bad. I hate it when that happens. What does that mean? It's forgotten what it's supposed to do. It's been with me for years. There's a lot of love there, but now it's just... They're not buoyant when they're in that particular titsling. All my favourite bras all die the same death, which is, at some point, I feel a stabbing pain in my chest and I think I'm having a heart attack. And then I (laughs) realise that the wire has just come out and you can never get it back in. You can sew as much as you like. It will never stay back in. Yeah, mine's not quite so dramatic, just a sad decline (laughs) of the chest area. Bit like life in general, really. Right, yeah. 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 I'm Hannah Dunleavy and last week I got stuck in a mini traffic jam that turned out to be caused by a group of girls on bikes stopping to play with a group of puppies. So dangerous. And yet, ladies, I applaud them. By applaud, did you mean join them? Well, I did think about it, to be honest, and somebody peeped them and I just thought, what is wrong with you? To be honest, they looked like they were on a cycling proficiency test and they looked like they'd all <laughs> failed, but they also looked like they didn't give a fuck. So they were just rubbing puppies on their face. Oh, God, it sounds joyous. It's what we all need right now. Yeah. On that bombshell. I'm Jen Offord and I love Bakayo Saka and I'm OK with it not coming home. Saka's brilliant. I love him too. I can't bear it. Well, more on that later. <laughs> but my my friend, Nick Miller, who is a football writer, well, a beautiful sports writer, he, at seven o'clock yesterday, was like, I am this close to just getting in my car and driving around till it's all over. I don't think I can watch it. Uh, he did see it through. About five minutes before penalties, I got up and wandered off. And my brother said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm doing busy work. <laughs> I was just literally busying myself until this was over. All I'm going to say on it is, Hannah, I know we're going to talk about some of the other things in a minute, but all I want to say is that, you know, Italy are a good team. I don't think there's any shame in losing to them. And I think we did really, really, really well. So I think we should be very proud of the team regardless. It can come home next year for the World Cup, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Why not? Doors always open to football. (laughs) Later on, I find out why the fact the economy is built for men is fucking us all over as I chat with financial journalist Katrine Marcel, whose excellent new book, Mother of Invention, shines a light on how understanding the consequences of sexism in our economy, it's what's going to save us all. Oh, good. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to Laura Cook about disability sport and Scope's new Make It Count campaign. And in Rated or Dated, we talk small plot... Big CGI and massive cinematic ripples as we watch 1996's The Frighteners. But first, they think it's all over. It isn't. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Houston. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Removes flare from anus. <laughs> oh no. And so, here we are, the day after England's first appearance in the final of a major football tournament in our lifetimes, and all I can say is, wasn't it fantastic to watch the nation come together after the collective trauma of the last 18 months to celebrate the achievements of a team of very talented and mostly young men? Oh no, wait, (laughs) that's not what happened, because this is England and we can't have nice things. No. I can't tell you how depressing it is to see football become a, well football 
in the ongoing culture war when it could, or at the very least should, have been so different. I want to start by looking at some of the epic middle-class sneering that took place between Wednesday night's semi-final victory and Sunday's final. This tweet from a blue check-marked academic type is pretty representative. Quotes, uh, just in case anyone has forgotten, the three lions are French. We were ruled by them in the 12th and 13th century. To which I'd say... Oh, do fuck off. (laughs) Attempting to represent anyone who wanted England to do well as part of the great unwashed mass of ignoramuses doesn't make you clever. It makes you part of the problem. So it's especially sad to see what is clearly a minority of England fans stepping up to be the very thing that insufferably smug Twitter wants them to be. And how sad it was to watch a match Not just hoping that England won as a reward for the team's hard work, but because I was scared of what might happen if they didn't. And while that experience is not new to me, the stakes have never been so high. Absolute scenes, and I mean that in the worst (laughs) possible way, outside Wembley and in Leicester Square were horrifying to watch, particularly knowing that any player who put a foot wrong would be subject to an onslaught of abuse on social media and were they black an onslaught of racist abuse too. Maybe this is why, when Marcus Rashford stepped up to take the penalty, I uncharacteristically (laughs) said out loud, I love you, Marcus. (laughs) As if verbalising the huge amount of respect that I, and a huge swathe of the country has for him, might guide that ball into the net. Alas, it wasn't meant to be. And Rashford, Saka and Sancho have endured a barrage of disgusting racist abuse. Something our Prime Minister condemned... Yep, that's the same guy who made great political hay out of refusing to condemn booing of England players taking a knee. And yep, I do find those two sentiments inconsistent. And yep, I think I do know which one is his true position. It's awful, wasn't it? Because I had a conversation with Lyra's dad a couple of weeks ago and he said that when he watches football now, because this is what happened with the Europa League final uh, about a month or so ago. I think it was Rashford, actually, and he got loads of racist abuse after that. And Lyra's dad said to me that he actually, it, he's talked about this with his friends and they all sort of say that like they actually fear black players making mistakes mm. in football matches now because of what the, of, of what the inevitable outcome of that will be, which is the racist abuse that they get. And I think that point about... Boris Johnson is is so important and the same pretty Patel's on Twitter today saying that she you know she condemns it she did exactly the same thing she said if you want to boo them taking the knee like you know fucking crack on mate and it's just like well what these you know these two things don't they're not isolated are they do you know what I mean they're all part of the same problem you can't be saying shit like that and then saying like oh we condemn people being racist the other thing I want to say is that I find it embarrassing as an English person that people you know that the world is watching at that moment and that's how we behave like not just the racism obviously the stuff that you're talking about the violence the the stupidity Mm. that follows are you saying Jen that it that you didn't get really drunk yesterday and dance on the top of a car naked. I did get really drunk yesterday and I did dance in my friend's living room, but I was fully clothed and, uh, you know, in, in the in the privacy of her of her home. I didn't get really drunk. I got, you know, I had a few drinks. But, like, I just... 
it's all it takes for me now, Jen. <laughs> well, yeah, no, me too. But it's just I just find it embarrassing that that's what people see when they when they watch us performing at the highest level. I find it embarrassing for us. I find it really sad for the players mm. who have done such an incredible job and have so much to be proud of. And like seeing that nineteen-year-old boy like sobbing on the pitch, it's just it's. Is nothing but heartbreaking. How can you look at that and see anything other than just heartbreak? It's it's awful to me. But also those scenes. Sorry, I'll get to my point now. Like we want to host these events. We want to, mm. as football fans, we want to say, let's have a World Cup here. Who the fuck is going to let us host events when we behave like that? It's just not going to happen. So that privilege, and it really is such an extraordinary privilege to be able to go and watch a match like that at Wembley. That privilege, you just abused it massively and you won't get it again because they won't let us host events. And they're right not to let us host events if we can't conduct ourselves in any kind of reasonable fashion. It's, it's, it's saddening. It really is. I couldn't agree more. But I do have to say I also am really angry at the amount of, like I say, real sort of sneering at the, the idea that England was in a final and the idea of any form, like I say, that anybody who seemed to want England to win was in some way some sort of nationalistic and I think come on I find I also find it offensive that there are people who actively don't want England to mm. win when you've got young lads like training playing and and knowing that they're going to face a, a racist mm. barrage and still getting up and taking a penalty and still having the balls to do that and you've got really sneery, like genuinely sneeriness of, oh, I actually hope that England don't win. And I think that's that to me is offensive as yeah. well. And that I just find really upsetting. No, I agree. I agree. I wanted England to do well. I don't consider myself to be like, you know, some sort of fucking yob or nationalist or whatever. Although I've said... You know, publicly, I, watching them, watching them play, watching the job that Gareth Southgate's done, watching that team of boys, you know, young men working their asses off and, and, and doing all that, it, it has made me feel proud. It has. And then it's all just mm. trashed within seconds. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah. It's worth mentioning just because we are standard issue and here's where we are. By men. Yeah, by men. It is. It is. It's by men. Anyway, speaking of men. You spent some time over the last year or so thinking, Whoa, isn't Dishy Rishi Sunak a nice guy peddling some weirdly socialist policies? You know, no. No, I haven't either, actually, but a lot of people have. A lot of people have, you're right. So they're not on their own. I always thought he was a cunt, but anyway. However, I am nonetheless here to pull the rug from under you as the government announced last week an imminent return to its nasty party days of old. That's right, no more Jackanory press briefings with Dominic Raab, no more masks with Boris. Look, some more people are going to die and I can't be held responsible, Johnson. Mm. And fuck it, why don't you boo those England players taking the knee anyway, says Pretty Patel. Um, how about we take a £1,000 off low-income families each year too, Sunak has chipped in, as the Treasury announced plans to end the £20 per week uplift to universal credit, which was introduced in April last year. I mean, it's not like we're in a pandemic anymore, is it? Uh, Mm. no. The good news is they've got a plan. A jobs-led economic recovery from COVID, with a focus on getting people into work. 
Never mind the fact that universal credit is an in-work benefit, replacing working tax credits and family tax credit, what about all the businesses collapsing as a result of the pandemic? Sure, we know about the pubs, hotels and restaurants, but even the mask-making companies are going to be fucked now, (laughs) right? Unsurprisingly, not everyone's into this. Jonathan Reynolds, Labour's Shadow Work and Pension Secretary, for example, said it would hurt our economic recovery. I'm inclined to agree with him. Campaign groups such as the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, Citizens Advice and the Resolution Foundation have all criticised the plans as well. Even The Sun's political editor, Harry Cole, called the move toxic and unfair, while six former Conservative Work and Pension Secretaries wrote to Rishi Sunak last week to ask him to scrap the plan. So, guys, do you still think he's fit? Yeah. I mean, they have to make cutbacks though, Jim, because they've spaffed all that money on their friends' track and trace. Yeah, exactly. Well, quite, quite. It's not how you fix an economy, is it? Give all the money to a small group of people. Like, that's that's not how you fix the economy, so... I don't know if you remember this, but back earlier at the start of the year, I spoke to Dr Jodie Gardner about austerity, and I said to her, I'm an economic moron, but I think the best thing to do when, like, we're in an economic crisis is to spread the money around because people who need it will actually spend it. Mm. And therefore, so if you give everyone a thousand pounds and say spend it on what you need, people will be... And Helen Lewis said this is what happened in America. People ran out and actually had dental work done and things that they, you know, they needed the money. Mm. So the money goes back into the economy and it starts circulating. Whereas if you give lots of money to a rich person, they're likely to invest it in something we'll that, sit on it. you know, doesn't benefit. Or exactly that, like a bank or mm. an ISA or you know, more property, something that actually exacerbates the problem for a lot of people. And I said, but I know nothing about economics. And she said to me, that's what Australia did. And that's how Australia got out of the problem that that it was in, in 2008. So it's actually proven to be that this doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And if we know that, you'd like to think they know that, right? Yeah. Anyway, proof last week, bit of good news for you, Hannah, that Great. while with one hand the Lord taketh away, he very much giveth with the other, and this time in the form of cows. That's right, flatulent climate change causing cows, pumping out harmful methane from their rear ends, can actually do good for the environment too. Researchers at the University of Natural Resources and Life Sciences in Vienna have found that the bacteria found in a cow's gut can digest some of the plastics used to make single-use packaging. And the next step is to figure out precisely which microbe is responsible, then synthetically mass-produce it in a bid to curb plastic pollution. Up with cows! Hooray! I thought for a horrifying moment they were going to make the cows eat all the plastic. <laughs> that's, that's, I did wonder when I read the headline, to be honest. So that's a, a happy conclusion to that terrifying I headline. I can't believe that the best news that we've got <laughs> that is literally bullshit. Literally bullshit. Oh, I really did look as well. <laughs> <laughs> More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. So, I know you don't watch Succession, do you, Jen? I've not yet had the pleasure, no. Okay, well, there's a scene in uh, there's a scene in the superlative HBO drama when Tom is testifying in front of a Senate hearing into sexual abuse when he attempts to convince them that he has no idea how Lester McClintock acquired the nickname Mo. 
even when it's spelled out for him, Mo Lester, Mo Lester. It's actually very funny, but the point it reveals is evergreen. People will tell you that abusers hide in plain sight, but some of them, shit, they're not even (laughs) hiding at all. Which brings me to Wayne Cousins, who last week pleaded guilty to the murder of Sarah Everard in March this year. According to a report in The Sun, the police officer's former colleagues at the Civil Nuclear Constabulary... I don't actually know what that is. No, I've never heard of it. They reportedly gave him the nickname The Rapist because he made female officers feel uncomfortable. Wow. It has also emerged that Kent Police received a complaint from a male motorist that a man had been spotted driving around Dover, naked from the waist down, during the time Cousins was a volunteer in 2015. That incident is being investigated by the Independent Office for Police Conduct after Kent Police took no action. The IOPC has also revealed that Cousins was accused of flashing on two other occasions, raising concerns that these were not properly investigated by the Met. In the days before, 33-year-old Miss Everard was raped and murdered. The Met is facing calls to investigate how Cousins was able to continue serving as an officer despite questions being raised about his behaviour and I suppose we'll have more on that if and when it happens. In the meantime, all we're left with is the distinct impression that the Met missed a pattern of disturbing behaviour that should have been very clear to them, especially given it's their job to, (laughs) checks notes, spot exactly this sort of thing. But hang on, here's another troubling report, this time in the Mirror, claiming that police officers accused of abusing their wives or girlfriends are cleared in almost every case. A total of 468 officers in the past three years have faced internal probes over domestic incidents. Of those, less than 8% were disciplined and just 16 of them lost their jobs, which is less than 4% of those accused. These figures were released by forces in England and Wales after a Freedom of Information Act request and come a year after the Centre for Women's Justice submitted what's been termed as a super complaint to watchdogs about how police forces handle domestic violence. Louisa Rolfe, domestic lead for the National Police Chiefs Council, said, We will investigate incidents of domestic abuse and take robust action where necessary. Officers will face criminal investigation and be dealt with directly based upon evidence presented. Nobody is above the law. Yeah, sorry, Louisa, that's not how it looks from here. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by award-winning writer and journalist, Catherine Marsal. Catherine, hello. Hi. So before we get to the meat of your excellent new book, Mother of Invention, How Good Ideas Get Ignored in an Economy Built for Men, I just want to say how gloriously refreshing and noticeable it is that all of your default humans are women. Yes, that's right. Thank you for noticing. I was thinking a lot about that when I wrote the book because it is in sort of a business book genre which is very male it's you know very dominated by male authors you know I literally have this note on my desk about things that is standard in this genre so you you have to have like a Steve Jobs anecdote you have to have a quote by Napoleon uh, you have to have <laughs> sort of 
you know, metaphors from military history, and you have to sort of bring that back into this big story of economics. And I was trying to do exactly that, but sort of thinking of the female equivalent, you know, what if business books and books on economics were written as much for women as for men, what would sort of the equivalent of the Steve Jobs anecdote and the, you know, the story about the sports star as a child and so on. So I bring in obviously like Serena Williams and witches and, you know, all all these other things, Kardashians, and try to do a similar thing. It is a hugely eye-opening book, even for someone who bangs on about how great and overlooked and undermined women are for my living. There were still some surprises at just how royally the economy has fucked women over forever. So the title Mother of Invention is both fairly self-explanatory, but also belies that the book is about so much more. Could you tell the listeners what it is about and why you wanted to write it? Yes. So it's a book about how innovations that we now take for granted have been delayed or not happened at all because of our ideas about gender. So it starts with the story of the rolling suitcase, which is this classic mystery of innovation almost, because we managed to put two men on the surface of the moon before we figured out that suitcases could have wheels. You know, suitcases <laughs> with wheels were only invented in 1972, and they didn't really kind of go mainstream really until the 1990s. And that's obviously strange, you know, the technology of the wheel was, you know, 5,000 years old at the time, you know, the suitcase had existed since the 1800s. Why couldn't we figure out to put these two things together? So in Nobel Prize winners in economics have written about this and lots of management thinkers. And I actually have the real answer in the book to to this (laughs) mystery, why it took so long. It has to do with gender. There was this really sort of strong idea that no man would ever roll a suitcase. It's simply unmanly. And women, you know, yes, they might roll a suitcase, but uh, women don't travel alone anyway. Department stores thought even after this product was invented and they, they didn't want it to sell it. So actually sort of gender and these ideas about gender are the explanation or the key to this classic innovation mystery. And that's how I start the book. And then the book's ha- book has lots of other examples to, you know, uh, you know, how we are sort of held back by our ideas about men and women when it comes to innovation. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of what you've discovered and explained so clearly with a, a lot of wit, very dry wit in Mother of Invention is fury making oh women aren't physically strong enough to do this job so it's definitely a higher pay grade for the men oh wait women are better at this job so it's clearly just a feminine attribute to be able to sew really well so it's definitely a lower pay grade for women ah it's not even subtle did it have you tearing your hair out <laughs> yes, it's it, well. Yeah, I still have some hair. You can actually see <laughs> it's, it. But it's a very lovely uh, head of hair you've got. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. No, it was infuriating, obviously, and I guess I use humor in order to kind of protect myself mm-hmm. from it. But <laughs> yeah. it's it, it is. I mean, it's like you know, this as somebody who writes about economics and as a financial journalist. I mean, this this has really been such a mystery to me. You know how 
status and pay always seems to follow masculinity and men in the economy. And I mean, I have a personal connection to it as well. One of the chapters is about programming, computer programming, and how that obviously used to be female dominated. The first programmers were women. Women basically invented software. My mother was a was a programmer my whole childhood. So I remember when this profession was still dominated by women and her sort of managers would come to my house and they had sort of big curly hair and brought me cakes. And that was sort of the image of tech that I grew up with. And I'm not that old. And I saw it all change into this whole sort of tech bro thing. And when my mother retired, obviously it was very high status, very high paid. This was something that was always at the back of my mind because I've kind of lived through this change, mm -hmm. you know, how we define some things as technical and then they become sort of seen as, as male and then they become high status in the economy. And we forget that women used to do these jobs. I mean, computer programming used to be compared to knitting and cooking from recipes when, when women did it. These mistakes, though, have been so costly, particularly with the computers that you were talking about there. What you really opened my eyes to was just how much Britain did itself down by the way it approached women in the workforce when it came to computing and trying to drag men into it who weren't really interested. It didn't work out. And then we sort of lost our footing of being any kind of innovators in that field, having done so well in the Second World War with the Enigma code cracking. But it's costly not just for women, it's costly for humanity. So a key example, I think, here about the huge cost this has caused the world is the electric car. So could you tell us a bit about the electric car and why we needn't have waited so long for them to be a thing? Yeah, I mean, today when we think of electric cars, I guess we think of, you know, Mr. Elon Musk and his Teslas. And, you know, it's kind of a male thing in, in, in many countries now. More men than women drive electrics. But that wasn't the case. Uh, I mean, electric cars have been around since the dawn of the automobile era. You know, in the 1800s in, in London, you could sort of phone an electric taxi company and an electric car would come and pick you up so they were around then you know we had petrol driven cars and electric cars and cars that uh, use steam technology and all of these types of technology were competing against each other and what's interesting and what i talk about in the book is how you know very quickly electric cars were perceived to be more feminine Basically, because they were a bit slower, they were a lot more comfortable and you, you know, they were much less dangerous. You didn't have to go out and try to crank them going, you know, something that could break your wrist or, or cost you your life, actually, when the engines got bigger. This idea spread that electric cars, they were for women and they started to become marketed towards women and product developed with women in mind. They were the first cars made with roofs because there was this idea that, you know, a real man doesn't need a roof on his car, right? <laughs> it's just all so silly. <laughs> it's really silly, isn't it? But it's true. Um, and that's the point of the book is just showing how these ideas about men and women and, you know, and the randomness of them and how they really manifest themselves into these very, very real things. You know, how our economies work, you know, what technologies we have, you know, if we have electric cars or petrol driven cars or if we have wheels on our suitcases so as you can you know you've read the book but as I think your listeners can guess what happened pretty soon was that you know when the electric car got perceived as feminine 
it also um, sort of scared off many male consumers. You know, this is a late car for the ladies, for the ladies. I don't want this. And this was actually an idea, you know, that contributed to the electric car then disappearing. It wasn't the main factor. They had battery problems and all other sorts of things. But yes, um, you know, even then, even in that huge shift, you know, us collectively kind of deciding that we, yes, let's build a whole world for petrol driven car technology. Gender was quite a big factor. Yeah, I mean, I have to take my hat off to you for not just writing over and over again. It's so silly. What do they think is going to happen if they get in a comfortable car? But you don't. Okay, I do actually have a bit of positive news in that I actually need to say a big thank you because you have dispelled my fear that I will at some point be replaced by a robot. In fact, I think the chapter which is called In Which Serena Williams Beats Gary Kasparov was my favourite as it properly shines a light on the fact that our very idea of intelligence, and I'm putting that in rabbit ears, is coded masculine and it very much elevates the cerebral, like being able to play chess, doing complicated algebra and neglects the body. What that does mean as a positive for women is that if there is a robot revolution, in general, we are safer than men, right? Yes. You know, we have all read these articles and seen these headlines, you know, will your job be taken over by a robot? And, you know, economists have done lots of studies. And what many of these studies were basically economists are trying to guess, you know, what what can robots do now and what will that mean in the future? They do point out that that many of the jobs that you know we see as feminine and that women do in the economy particularly in the care sector are more robot safe it is you know now we have robots that can beat you know Gary Kasparov you know at chess I mean probably my phone could do that um, <laughs> but uh, there is no robot that can yet you know walk into a stranger's home and make them a cup of tea and do the kind of care work that women are still expected to do mm-hmm. for very low pay in the economy so if you think about that what I talk about in the book is you know okay what will that mean for for the future imagine that the robots come in and they make very large groups of men unemployed and the only place in the economy where there's demand for human labor will be in traditionally female uh, professions what will then happen with value uh, you know will finally pay in these professions go up what will happen if we have to retrain you know 1 million unemployed male truck drivers into becoming you know carers in elderly care all of these things are really interesting economic and political issues to to think about. And they have to do with gender. And I find it very, very silly how little we talk about gender when it comes to the economy, because mm-hmm. it is so incredibly gendered. Our our labor markets are, you know, incredibly gendered. Uh, you know, men work in certain professions, women in other professions, and that's still true almost all over the world. So obviously when a big technological shift happens like the robots coming coming that will have you know effects that have to do with with gender too definitely and these deep-seated notions around gender and innovation as we've mentioned earlier they don't just hold women back they hold men back too there are plenty of examples from history to prove that in your book but we're not necessarily very good at learning lessons from history. In fact, just yesterday, I passed an ad on the underground calling for new entrepreneurs. Great. And the, the photo was, do you want to guess? 
a young white man. Ah, just going to sigh forever. Do you think there is hope for change here? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) I do. But I guess I'm I'm sort of a natural optimist. And I, I actually thought that I'd written this really optimistic book in a sense, because, you know, I'm trying to point out that, you know, look... We have all of these silly examples from history when we were held back. You know, we couldn't see how wheels on suitcases were a good idea or electric cars and so on. But and what I also show in the book is how these ideas about what's male and female, they do also change. So, you know, I think a lot of things that, you know, now we think are impossible will in the future will will laugh at it just like we now laugh at how men were not allowed to have suitcases with wheels so i do think change is coming and should be coming but we need to change the economy in order for that to happen because let I me mean, like in you know in in britain or in sweden where i'm from still women only get for example one percent of all venture capital mm. which means that the future of innovation is is extremely male and also of the women that that get these types of investments a large majority are, are white women so it's it's even trickier if you're a woman of color that's a huge economic problem. Just look at all the ideas we're wasting and all the potential we're wasting. Just again, because of these, you know, these ideas that, you know, an, an entrepreneur worth investing in has to be a white man. It's so pernicious as well. So when I got to the chapter where you're talking about venture capitalism, a little bit of my brain, and I am, you know, not to toot my own horn, a fairly smart woman, quite well read, just went, oh, this isn't for me. I'm going to find this really hard to understand. And actually absolute credit to you you explain it so clearly and I got it straight away what it all was and I thought that's key though isn't it women have been told this is this isn't for you this isn't for you and that's the whole conspiracy I'm telling you like you know that is (laughs) that's what they want you to think that you know that's what economists often do you know sort of use complicated words or try to put things in this language that is just very inaccessible and really it's it's not that it's not that hard and it's not that complicated and obviously that's also part in you know if you are told that you can't understand the world of venture capital which is a very male dominated world you're not going to go into those offices and and ask them to invest you know one billion pounds in you right and so it all sort of goes together Listeners, I'm not going to try and paraphrase Katrine here, but she uses whales and whaling as the analogy and it made it like crystal clear straight away. So Mother of Invention is translated by Alex Fleming. It's published by William Collins and is out now. What are you working on now that is out into the world? Well, eventually I will write another book, uh, which would probably also be around women and money. But right now, you know, I have this book is coming out in quite a few languages in the next year so which is very exciting that so is. i'll get to follow its journey uh, out into the world do you think you'll get to do any like live events and stuff well i hope so i've been doing some digital events but obviously it would be great to actually meet real readers and potential readers and talk about these issues so yeah let's all hope for it so where would people find out more about what you're up to please 
So they can go onto my website. It's katrinemarsal.com. And I have a free newsletter, which comes out every Thursday. It's called The Wealth of Women. If, uh, you know, if you enjoy these sort of dry, hopefully witty musings on business and economics from a feminist perspective, then, uh, you know, go and subscribe. Can confirm that is exactly what your writing is. It was a real joy to read, despite being a little bit depressing in parts because of, you know, the nature of the beast. Thank you so, so much for chatting with me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Laura Cook, a charity worker from Hertfordshire. Laura has nail patella syndrome, a genetic syndrome affecting her mobility. Hi, Laura. How are you? Yeah, really well. Thank you, Jane. Nice to meet you. And you too. So you're here today to talk to us about some new research that's been published this week by the charity Scope that has found that 48% of disabled people have become less active since the start of the pandemic. So that's obviously a, a huge decline. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, about your own relationship with exercise, because you didn't take up sport until you were in your 30s, right? Yes, I think like a lot of disabled people, you know, I didn't feel confident doing things. You feel sometimes different or, you know, just, just don't feel like you want to try things. It's just nerve wracking, you know, it can be quite daunting. I think because of the fact that in my own physical abilities I noticed that I wasn't able to do so many things and you get to a point in your life maybe it's because once you hit an age and you think oh my goodness I actually should do some exercise actually you know maybe the doctors are right they're telling me <laughs> I should do exercise and so I wasn't at all sporty when I was at school or anything like that and we kind of felt different and I think because of that I had those experiences I was reluctant to, to try things but then once I got to my 30s and thought actually I really need to do something I tried various things out so I did like Pilates for a while actually people saying that was really good for me but I, I found in that experience that I was got to a certain point and then I was so far behind the rest of the class I couldn't keep up you know when you're in class of sort of 10 people and everyone else is progressing and, and moving on and there are just so many things that you can't do and that you feel left out. And that's just that horrible feeling. And I think what's worked for me is actually having a personal trainer now at the gym. And not only that, finding a gym that's really great and really has like an inclusive feel about it. There's lots of different people that go there, all ages, disabled people, non-disabled people. And having that one-to-one -one support from a personal trainer really meant that he could adapt things for me. I found that, you know, he could do different things in the gym, use equipment that I never thought I'd be able to use. So that really changed my my perceptions of personal trainers as well, I have to mm. say. Again, I thought personal trainers would only work with, you know, super fit people. So yeah, I've completely changed my my relationship with exercise, I would say. So can I take you back a step? from there just because you you said to me off air as it were that you didn't consider yourself to be disabled until you were in your 20s and one of the reasons for that was because you were just doing the same things as the rest of your friends and the rest of your friends were not 
engaging in sport or exercise as young women typically do not you know there comes an age I think it's about 14 or so when when young women start to drop out of exercise I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about that from your perspective yeah interesting actually interesting you're saying about that about women dropping out of exercise at that age because I went to an all-girls school a comprehensive school so you know very inclusive and 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 friendly in that respect like you say yeah just because I had a very different experience because of being born with a with a disability I didn't actually feel different in that sense because I knew lots of my you know my friends weren't particularly sporty didn't particularly want to take part in the sports days or, or the kind of tournaments at school and that kind of thing. What do you think being more active has done for you physically and mentally I guess? Wow um, it's done amazing things actually um, certainly over the past year I've realised how keeping up some kind of physical activity is really important for your mental health as well. I think first of all one thing I really learned about um, going to the gym and having that personal trainer was that amazing feeling when you done something that you never thought you'd ever be able to achieve or just you know reaching a goal and for you in your life that's a massive thing and it brings you so much satisfaction and you feel that sense of achievement. I, I've really enjoyed that kind of feeling from going to the gym. And also, yeah, obviously during the pandemic, it's not been easy in any, in any stretch. And anyone that says they've had an easy time, I don't believe. <laughs> um, so having chance even just to go out for a walk or do something uh, physical has been really important and I I found for me personally as well I've had quite a lot of personal challenges in my life over the last couple of years as well as the pandemic but being able to go to the gym has been a really great place where I feel I can switch off it's me time it's something I'm doing for myself and that kind of really really helped me to to switch off sometimes and also kind of maintain my my own mental well-being as someone with a mobility impairment, how easy is it for you to access the support that you need to to take up sport? Obviously, you have got a personal trainer, but personal trainers are, generally speaking, prohibitively expensive for a lot of people. It's incredibly difficult. I think exactly like you say, disabled people often face financial barriers anyway, because the cost of living for disabled people can be more expensive. You know, just being able to join a gym in itself, that's an additional cost or participating in something else. I would agree with that, that sentiment entirely. One of the reasons why I'm really excited to be taking part in this Make It Count campaign is that I want to encourage disabled people to not be scared of trying things out. I think that's a really big, confidence is that really big barrier, that kind of fear of, of standing out, that fear of being, yeah, being excluded in all parts of life and including a sport is something that disabled people shouldn't have to encounter. And I really think, you know, if I could have had access to information about accessible sports and accessible activities in my local area, that would have probably helped me a lot more quickly to get you know, get on board with doing some more physical activity. I would say, actually, it's probably during the 2016 Paralympics that I proactively went and did a bit more research myself and found things like a local sports park near me, and a sports park does hire out equipment and things for, for disabled people on occasion. So you can go, for example, and try out trikes and things and uh, cycle around the park if you want but you know that's only because of my own research and that digging about that I found out that information and you shouldn't have to 
do that. That should be promoted. Even like I said, my own gym has a very inclusive atmosphere. And it really frustrates me that they don't talk about that more publicly to encourage more more people to take that up. So like obviously during the pandemic no one has really been able to access these sports facilities and services and the world is starting to open back up again. I've just been to the gym for the first time in over a year yesterday. And I wondered, because obviously, because I wasn't active or sporty until I was about 30 either, I think one of the things that put me off was that it's hard, right? It's it's. I found it hard. I found running hard. I found going to the gym hard. I found I was very unfit and it was hard. And that is something that really, really puts you off, I think. And so obviously forming a habit is difficult. And that's the key, isn't it, is consistency. It's it's continuing to do it, noticing those little gains over time, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the thing that makes you want to keep going back. But obviously, it, you know, it might be a, that bit harder for some people to form those habits if there are more barriers in their way to participation. So I was wondering, is how much has that impacted, do you think, on disabled people in particular, where there are more barriers, is the world starting to open back up for disabled people as well? That's a good question. I mean, was um, it even open in the first place? So, yeah, I was going to talk about like how demotivating it was during lockdowns, actually, mm. like how hard I found that, that additional barrier of trying to find a different way of exercising. That was really, really challenging. And, you know, I got so, just so annoyed all the time with the lockdown rules. And I said, it's OK, you can still go outside and exercise once a day. But particularly for myself, someone with a mobility impairment, and I can't ride a bike. It's, I'm not particularly good at walking. I find walking difficult, although I did do it, <laughs> not down. And running is a complete no-go. So... Actually, you know, that's just a ridiculous thing to say. You can go out and exercise once a day because for lots of disabled people, that just wasn't possible. And having that change in routine and that change in rhythm, definitely that adjustment was so difficult and really, really hard to to keep motivated. In the first lockdown, obviously really lucky to have that contact with a personal trainer who could do online sessions, so could do things at home. Second lockdown, it's over the winter lockdown anyway. Who wants to go out when it's cold and raining? Particularly when you've got something in musculoskeletal where you know getting cold is going to make you feel worse. For me personally, you know, I can walk short distances and have to sit down on a regular basis. So one of the things I really noticed was a lack of seating anywhere in my local area and again having to do lots of research into accessible routes and thinking about where there was somewhere to sit potentially and so it wasn't particularly expensive but again it's an additional barrier I got like lightweight walking stick stool so I could take that out on, on walks with me so at least I could I could sit down at any point I wanted to sit down. So I wanted to ask you, and you, you've sort of you mentioned it earlier, the 2016 Paralympics, and a lot of people credit the 2012 Paralympics as a real kind of turning point for disability sport in the UK, I guess particularly. And obviously, we've got the Paralympics coming up this summer. I wondered how important do you think they are to grassroots sport for people with disabilities? And do you think that Paralympic movement and disability sport, do you feel that the same kind of impetus is behind it now as, as there was in 2012? Yeah, I have to say the 2012 Paralympics was probably another quite big turning point in my own life and that kind of perception of, of disability and seeing myself as disabled as well. While I didn't get any tickets for any of the Olympic 
events. I several times went to the went to the Paralympics and including the Paralympic opening ceremony, which is absolutely fabulous. And yeah, definitely feeling that part of something. And it's just that incredible feeling of being in the stadium that was completely full and people cheering on disabled athletes for the you know, probably they've never had an experience of a disability themselves. And that was yeah, quite quite an emotional time for me probably as well. Really exciting and to feel like I belonged to something as well but I do think some of that kind of excitement or some of that really that enthusiasm has drifted or sort of disappeared slightly over the over the years I mean that's nearly 10 years ago now mm. wasn't it I can't probably my time flies I, I, I think it's all very well for Paralympians and I think that that's you know it's fantastic but they are still elite athletes and while it's great to see more, you know, disabled people on, on television and Paralympics being on, on Channel 4 and things, it's great. I still think there's that kind of feeling of, yes, but I'm not an elite athlete. How do I get to get involved in, in sport and activity as a disabled person? What is there out there for me? And I think that's what needs to change. I think that leisure industry, the sports fitness industry needs to do a lot more to make themselves inclusive or improve that reputation that they are inclusive of disabled people. Another specific disability sports as well. Are there more clubs? Are there opportunities to open more clubs at a local level so that you know more people can take part? That's what I would really, really like like to see. I think if someone's listening to this who might want to get involved, might want to try a sport, someone specifically with with a disability or mobility impairment, is is there a tool somewhere online where they can search for activities in their local area? Does that exist, or is there is there another way to access support? I think this is the great thing about the the Make It Count campaign from Scope is that they are actually opening up that information and that's the place where you can go to find out more about activities and clubs, um, whatever that may be, whether it's dancing and some kind of sport. That's the place to go. So I would recommend that anyone goes to the Scope website, which is scope.org.uk. And that's where you can find out a lot more about the Make It Count campaign. And that's where um, disabled people will be able to find out some information about other organisations which are you know, inclusive of disabled people and where you can find out some activities that you, you can try. But yes, as far as I know, there is nowhere else to look. Um, and maybe this is something that, you know, Paralympic sport needs to coordinate actually you know a kind of national database or a national website where everyone can go and find out about activities if you'll allow me to be frank that is fucking ridiculous in this day and age (laughs) that that sport england and sport uk haven't sorted that out so we've had this girl can so maybe we need something now for disability sports yeah definitely yeah definitely something for disability sport i you know i want to see there's many disabled people feeling that they can take part in activity and I would personally I would encourage anyone to to try anything out that they they want to but if, if you can't access 
that information you don't know where to look is that's just demotivating in itself you know that's it you stop you can't be bothered there's nothing out there for well, me. that's the first barrier isn't it? that's the first barrier and it's a massive one like okay so how do i even find out where this stuff is like oh i can't it doesn't exist anyway so on a slightly more positive note to end on so you've mentioned it just now scope is launching a new fully accessible virtual sporting fundraiser make it count and you can clock up minutes doing an active challenge between the 24th of august and the 5th of september to coincide with the paralympic games and you can find out more by visiting scope.org.uk or following them on twitter at scope laura what are you going to be doing to raise a bit of cash for the make it count campaign so what i'm going to be doing is i'm going to clock up 300 minutes of gym time during that paralympic time frame it's yeah really exciting i can do lots of different things now at the gym so i won't have to stick to just one specific thing in the gym that can kind of means i can mix it up and i can have a lot of fun uh, with my personal trainer as well sport is actually really fun or physical activity can be lots of fun and that's something i've really learned through my journey it's not all about you know the hard work i think you want to find something that you can really enjoy and have a laugh at the same time and having a laugh is also more exercise so what more what more could you want absolutely got to engage those abdominal muscles right have a have a good hearty (laughs) chuckle laura thank you so much for joining me thank you it's been really nice talking to you today Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film had me asking myself some really weird questions about consent and ghosts and mummies? Oh, that line, that line. Oh, this week we watched 1996's The Frighteners. Hello, Peter Jackson as writer and director. Howdy, Michael J. Fox as our big bad busting hero, Frank Bannister. A sharp salute to Arlie Ermey in an inspired cameo as a ghostly rerun of his full metal jacket drill instructor and an um, no-thank-you scary man to Jake Bussey as Johnny Bartlett, a serial killer who's not going to let something as small as state execution stop his spree. It's a film that sits in what's probably the trickiest of all genres, comedy horror, and The Frighteners wears both lightly, offering amused smiles and jump scares rather than the piss-yourself of a laughing or terror variety. But what it is, without question, is pretty damn key in cinema as we now know it. So, Jen, Hannah, have you seen it before? I know that you knew it was Peter Jackson, Hannah, but was that because you'd seen it or because you'd looked it up? Funnily enough, I thought I'd seen it. I can remember hiring it from Blockbuster mm-hmm. because when I was at university, Bad Taste was the de rigueur cult film that uh-huh. everybody watched. And also Heavenly Creatures is amazing. So I remember hiring it for the video shop, but having watched it now, I think it might have been one of those things I hired and then never got round to watching because none of it appeared to be familiar. And to we'll me. talk about whether it should have stayed that way in a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, what about you? I'd never even heard of it before, to be honest. So no, it's uh, brand new to me. Why am I saying it's important? Well, it was co-written by Peter Jackson and his partner, Fran Walsh, and The Frighteners came on the back of 1994's Heavenly Creatures, which Hannah just mentioned. And that was a small indie production based on the notorious 1954 Parker Hume murder case in Christchurch. And it came ahead of The Lord of the Rings, a sprawling fantasy quest trilogy which everyone has heard of whether they want to or not. But back to The Frighteners. Let's have a quick look at our Peter Jackson checklist. Fantasy, tick. Shot in New Zealand, tick. Small hero, tick. And to clarify, I mean that in both stature and also a hero we're not meant to believe has it in him to be so. Sinister hooded character, tick. OTT and then some, tick. CGI-tastic, tick. 
It's no surprise that the Frighteners opened doors for Jackson that would lead all the way to those Hobbit books and one of the biggest trilogies of all time. Particularly the last item on that tick list, CGI plays a hefty role in the Frighteners. Too hefty. Hmm, I'm sure we'll get to that as well. But the overreach for special effects in creating the Frighteners, spooks, carpet monsters, prosthetics-laden characters and swirly tunnel of light to heaven was a massive cash shot in the arm for Weta Digital, Jackson's fledgling SFX company. Once the film was over, Jackson and Weta had way more computing power than they thought they needed, so they had to find a new film to justify all the money they'd spent. Oh, hello there, Lord of the Rings. The Frighteners was a box office flop, not helped by being pushed forward for a summer release instead of its Halloween pencil, which meant it came out at the same time as Will Smith behemoth Independence Day. Critics, however, mostly enjoyed it. Mostly. Not Roger Ebert, though, who gave it just one star. Performances were pretty universally praised, particularly that of Fox. The main complaints were that the SFX proved way too much of a clever thing, and there was both too much and yet not enough plot. And so, to the plot. A weird, dark, sometimes sick horror romp. Following a car accident, Frank Bannister can see dead people, although none of this has made him reconsider getting behind the wheel, and he continues to be a fucking terrible driver. I reckon Lyra could drive better than mm-hmm. Frank Bannister. <laughs> I reckon Jen could drive better than Frank <laughs> I was going to say Jen, but Jen's probably got a bit more motor coordination than Lyra. I don't know. A <laughs> little bit, a little bit. A <laughs> little bit. Frank is, in all fairness, a bit of a pathetic character. He's stymied by grief and guilt over his wife's death, and he's chosen to channel his newfound ability to see ghouls into a rackety exorcism business, removing spooks from people's houses, albeit spooks he's put there in the first place. As Frank's friends comprise hip dude Cyrus, chime at bride, creaky-boned old-timer the judge, John Astin, and nerdy bookworm Stuart, Jim Five, All dead, all helping Frank make, well... You wouldn't call it a living. However, a series of unexplained deaths are frightening the town. Perfectly fit folk are popping their clogs after massive heart attacks. Frank and his creepy cemetery chasing ways soon make him number one suspect as far as Box of Frogs FBI agent Milton Dammers, Jeffrey Coombs being very unusual, is concerned. It isn't Frank doing the dirties, obviously. No, it's long-dead serial killer Johnny Bartlett, back from the very dead thanks to his girlfriend and one-time in-real-life murder partner Patricia Bradley, played by Dee Wallace. And so it is up to Frank and his ghoulish pals to stop them, obviously. Oh, and there's a love interest and she's also a doctor and that's very handy. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, the twists and turns of the last 45 minutes, it's, I can't be bothered to sum them up. It's just twisty-turny ghoul chasing. And... Goes on a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. But it's it's the pace never stops. I will give it that. So, what did you think? I'm going to start with with Mary. <laughs> with Mary, yeah, I had to watch this with my mum. She was with me at the weekend, and she did a crossword, tutted a bit, shifted uncomfortably in her seat, and at the end summed it up with the damning word amateurish. <laughs> wow, and her only other comment was, "Oh, that was Frank from ER." Was she correct? It was. Yeah, she's, she was correct. Oh, it was wow. Frank from ER. I think perhaps for me, the whole thing could be summed up for the fact that, you know, they've spent so much money on the effects that the rest of it sometimes seems a bit slapdash. Mm. And most people in it are unknown. And I'm not going to say there are, like, particularly bad performances. Some of them are quite hammy. But the fact that none of these people went on to make anything else even vaguely significant perhaps sums it up. I guess what's very telling about The Frighteners when you're talking about Cass is it was the final sort of feature film that Michael J. Fox did. 
kind of put him off because he was away in New Zealand for so long and it's when he got his diagnosis of Parkinson's. So it was sort of the last one he did for a long time. You can tell that Peter Jackson loves horror because there are all sorts of, I don't know if they're actual horror nods, but they look like horror No, they are. They are like The Shining and stuff. Yeah, and also Patricia's mother has almost exactly the same hair that Gary Oldman has in Dracula. Yes, she does. Uh, (laughs) What an incredible do. Jen, come on, chip in. Um, Yeah, I don't... You're right, it's quite fast-paced, but it did last a bit longer than I'd like it to have done, and the last 45 minutes were a bit like, huh, 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 huh? There's a lot going on. Cartoonish. Yes, cartoonish, yes, it was. Also, I did. I am a wuss and I did find it, you know, a little bit scary at oh, times. Oh, which bits made you scared, please, mate? Just like in general, mostly the last 45 minutes, to be honest, when he's like, you know, trying to shoot people and do various things and, and disintegrating into like a weird thing. and That's very bad taste, that just kind of gross rather than scary. Yeah, yeah no, that I didn't like that bit. He actually yeah. toned it back because it was supposed to be getting like a PG rating so he toned back loads of stuff that Jackson really wanted to do he didn't put in and they still slapped it with an R rating so that's why when Dammers gets his head blown off that was just at the end when Jackson was like well if you give me an R rating then he just chuck in an exploding mm. head which is very bad taste as well it's bad taste just to ask is that the zombie one he did you know it's aliens oh I feel like my brother's seen a Peter Jackson film about zombies, which he said was, like, so disgusting. He sort of... I mean, it sounds like bad taste, but they're aliens rather than zombies. Well, I've not seen it, uh, and I have no plans to. No, I wouldn't. What I will say about this, though, is if you consider this is 1996, which is the same year as The Craft, the effects in this are (laughs) fucking amazing (laughs) by comparison to The Craft. They actually kind of stand up I I think it's interesting that it's filmed in New Zealand because there's a scene where they're at a funeral and there's like a beautiful landscape behind them and I was thinking oh I wonder where this is in America it's not in America it's in New Zealand it all makes sense classic Jackson Mm. I wondered if we could talk a little bit and only a little bit because I feel like we've covered this when we chatted about Badlands for flicking a while back But that depiction of women murderers, particularly teens, when they pair up with, in this case, Johnny Bartlett, but they talk about Charles Startweather, who was a real true crimer. And yeah, he had a very young girlfriend too. Mm. I think it's it's quite interestingly handled. They're not glamorised. I mean, there's obviously conversations around depiction of mental illness when you look at this film, but they're they're not glamorised. They're clearly like batshit. People don't want to be them. No? Mm. Joe, I think you were on maternity leave when we did Badlands. I mean, the joy of Badlands is that, despite the fact that she follows him on his murderous rampage, she spends most of her time fantasising about what bloke she's going to get together with when he dies. (laughs) Whereas this is like a more long-term love affair, if you want to put love or whatever it is in those quotes. Yeah, that's all I've got to say. One of my biggest questions is why Michael J. Fox's character has to do stuff in this in order to continue the plot, and that annoys me. Like, the easiest thing to do would be to just let the soul collector, what they're calling it at that point, that's killing people with a heart attack, let that happen while he's not there. But instead he keeps, like, kidnapping these people, which only implicates yeah. him further in this thing. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's, it's slight and busy all at the same time, yeah. and that's it's quite a lot. I, I've got to admit, like, it was fun. 
it wasn't necessarily the film I remembered. I remembered it being much more clever. I remembered it being funnier. But I didn't, like, hate the time I spent watching it. But I also was like, oh, I thought I'd pick something a bit more interesting than this. And I hadn't. So apologies. Well, I'll let you know if and when Mary forgives you for this. <laughs> Where does she yeah. stand on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, just out of interest? Oh, I'd imagine she's a fan. Okay. I would imagine. It's like Mullet, isn't it, on Costner? Big fans. Those, <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, let's skip to it. Rated or dated? Well, this is difficult for me because, you know, the selection of whether or not something is rated in the first place or whether it's... So I'm going to say this film was never rated, but I don't think that it has dated. I think that's a, a, if that's a perfectly an acceptable answer. answer. Yes. Yeah, I don't think it's dated. I found it a bit like, eh, to watch, but I don't think it's dated. I mean, that would usually be a really frustrating film review, Jen, but I do agree with you. <laughs> it's a bit <laughs> uh, Yeah, so agreed. What are we watching next week to try and cover my travesty? I think we can all agree that the 1970s was the greatest decade for films, and yet we've hardly watched any films from the 70s because all the best ones aren't actually experiencing any anniversaries until now. Next week, we're going to be watching All the President's Men. That is exciting. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I've, I've seen it before. You'll be surprised. It is the man spreadinest, <laughs> honest to goodness, the man spreadinest film that's ever existed. Standard issue for all women.